Well, if you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn uh, in it with me, please, to John's Gospel, chapter 20. Uh, And as I intimated earlier, our focus is going to be uh, particularly on verse 31, John 20, verse 31. When a high-profile author publishes a new book, there are certain things that are expected of that author, and one is that they will take part in publicising that book. And to do that, perhaps they'll have to turn up at a bookshop and sign copies of the book, or they'll have to give interviews uh, to TV and radio and on the internet about the book. And often you'll find that the um, the author turns up with a big smile on their face and they're really thinking, I wonder when this is going to be over. Well, one question they'll invariably be asked at a signing session or an interview will be, so why did you write this book? What were you hoping to achieve through it? And there are, of course, many things that might motivate an individual to want to write a book, not all of which they would admit to in public. Some authors write because the contract they have with their publishing company demands that they do so. They may not particularly feel like it, but they've signed a contract that they'll produce at least one book a year for the next five years. Others write because they enjoy doing so. They find it relaxing and pleasurable, and so they write simply for the enjoyment of it. And then there are those, of course, who write because they want to make money or to be famous. But there are some authors who write because they have a message burning in their heart. It's a message which they are desperate to communicate to as wide an audience as possible. They have come to see a truth that they believe must be heard. And they feel a responsibility to get that message out. And so they write a book to inform the public of this truth that they have come to appreciate and they want to convince the public of this truth. And their ambition is to change hearts and minds. And that's the kind of author that the writer of this fourth gospel was. We know him as John. And he tells, him, tells us, doesn't he, himself here in verse 31, what his motivation for writing this gospel was. It wasn't money. It wasn't fame. It wasn't simply personal pleasure, though he did find it enjoyable, I'm sure, to write it. And it wasn't the demands of a publishing company. He had good news, which he couldn't keep to himself. News he simply had to declare. And it was news about a person, that person being Jesus of Nazareth. And what was that news? John had heard this news. John had come to understand it. John had come to love this news. And John wanted everyone to be aware of this. It's that Jesus is someone unique. I was going to say someone special, but that wouldn't be it, would it? He is someone unique. And John wanted everyone to know that Jesus, verse 31, is the Christ, the Son of God. That was his aim in writing, 
John, what do you hope to achieve through this? What is your prayer? My prayer, he would say, is that by the time people have read this book, their eyes will have been opened to this astonishing truth that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the Son of God. That Jesus of Nazareth is the Saviour that God promised he would send, the king he would bring into the world to rescue all of his people. And so this book, John's Gospel, is all about Jesus from beginning to end. John is wanting to present Jesus to us and to present him as a particular person, the Christ, the Son of God. But John tells us here as well in these verses that it was never his intention to publish a comprehensive biography of Jesus. It was never his intention to record everything Jesus ever said and everything Jesus ever did. John admits uh, in chapter 21 and verse 25 that if he'd wanted to do that, to produce an exhaustive account of everything Jesus said and everything Jesus did, he would be setting himself an impossible task. Notice what he says in the very last verse of his gospel. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So John says, look, I'm not trying to write a comprehensive, exhaustive biography of Jesus. I'm giving you a selective account of his life and ministry. So what's John going to put into his gospel then? He knows he can't put everything in. Um, And one of the the problems that I used to have when writing essays in university was that I wanted to put everything I'd learned in. Uh, And generally, by the time you had a word limit, of course, and by the time I had to present it, I'd have to cut no end of things out, and I'd be, oh, it was a distress to me, cutting these things out. Well, John is aware, I can't put everything in. I'd love to, perhaps, but that's impossible, and it wouldn't be helpful. So I've got to choose. I've got to be selective. So what's he going to put in? What's he going to focus on? What must be there? Well, remember John's purpose in writing. John wants to demonstrate to his readers, and that includes us by extension today, that Jesus is the king that God had said he would send to save his people and to save them from their sins. So John is going to say, right, what I need to do then is to write a gospel that provides irrefutable evidence that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So he's got this target in mind. This is what I want to achieve. This is what I want to bring my readers to an understanding that Jesus is this unique person. And so everything I put in it must be designed to bring that to the front and to make it clear. And so John writes what you might call a very tight and focused gospel. And he decides to fill his book with evidence. Evidence which leads us to an inescapable conclusion that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the King who by reigning over us, rescues us. So what evidence is he going to include then to support this 
message that he wants to preach? What's going to be the meat, if you like, in the sandwich that is his gospel? And he tells us here in verses 30 and 31, signs. John is going to record and he has signs. That is to say, miracles performed by Jesus, which point us to the truth about Jesus. That's what the miracles of Jesus are. Signs which point us to the truth about Jesus. And so what John has done is to take miracles, to record them in his gospel, to record the very acts, the miracles themselves, but also Jesus' teaching about them and his own interpretation of them to support this magnificent claim that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God. And again, John makes it clear to us here that for time's sake and for space's sake, he can't put all the signs that Jesus performed in. He says, verse 30, Jesus did many other signs, as well as the one we've just read and the the other ones I'm going to mention now. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But he says, I've chosen certain ones. Because these are the clinchers, if you like. These really leave you with no doubt whatsoever, says John, as it were, that what I'm saying is the truth. That Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And there are a number of signs. Uh, We're not going to look at them in detail, but I'll just mention them for you now. The first sign, Jesus changes water into wine at a wedding in Cana. The second sign, Jesus heals the son of a royal official. The third sign, Jesus gives mobility to a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. The fourth sign, Jesus feeds more than 5,000 people with just five loaves and two fish to start with. The fifth sign, Jesus walks on the Sea of Galilee. The sixth sign, Jesus gives sight to a man who had been blind from birth. The seventh sign, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And the eighth sign, the coup de grace, as it were, Jesus himself rises from the dead, having been crucified three days earlier. And that, of course, is the the sign that's mentioned there in John 20 that we read, the final sign. Now, why does John choose these particular miracles? Remember his point, Jesus is the Messiah. And so I want to marshal evidence now that proves he's the Messiah. Why does he choose these signs? Because if you look back in the Old Testament, all these things that take place in John's Gospel that John records are things that the Old Testament prophets said the Messiah would do when he came. He would bring wine to the people, not literal wine. And that says wine is a symbol of joy. When the Messiah comes, he will bring joy to the hearts of his people. And for the Jews, wine symbolized joy and rejoicing. And so in the Old Testament, you've got in the book of Isaiah, when he comes, he'll bring wine to his people. And Jesus brings wine to his people at Cana. And the Old Testament prophet said that Jesus would bring healing to the sick. And so Jesus heals a royal official son. And the Old Testament said that the the Messiah, when he came, would feed the people. And you've got that picture in Moses, haven't you? Uh, And Jesus picks up on it, the bread from heaven. And Jesus gives bread to his people. 
And it was said that Jesus would make the lame leap, or the Messiah would make the lame leap. And Jesus does just that. The the, the prophet said the Messiah would give sight to the blind. And of course, we see Jesus doing just that. And so you see what John is doing in his gospel. In a sense, he's acting like a barrister presenting his case to a jury in a courtroom. You know what happens in the courtroom? Uh, say now you've got a, the prosecutor and he'll stand before the, the court and the jury in particular and right at the very beginning he'll say to them, now this is what I believe. I, I've looked at the evidence and this is the conclusion I've come to, that this person is guilty of this crime. Right at the beginning, before anything else, they'll announce what they have come to understand. And then they'll say, and my job, over the next however many days or whatever, is to present to you evidence which proves to you that what I have said is the truth and it cannot be otherwise. And that's John. He starts with, in his mind, this is what I've come to see. And then he presents his case to us, the jury. And his case consists of these eight signs. Signs which point us in one obvious, inescapable direction. That Jesus is not simply a figure of history who's now gone. That Jesus wasn't just an interesting teacher or or a, a wonderfully compassionate man, but that Jesus Christ is the saviour that we all need. That he is the saviour God promised he would send. And he is the saviour who calls us to him today. It's an important point here. God does not expect us to exercise blind faith. That's sometimes how we might think it is, isn't it? That God simply says, now this is what I tell you, just believe it. Why? What evidence? What proof is there to support what you said? Don't worry about that. Just believe it. Blind faith. Somebody has said a faith is taking what cannot possibly be true and believing it anyway. Taking what cannot possibly be true and believing it anyway. But the Bible does not call us to exercise blind faith. The Bible calls us to exercise faith in the evidence that we so clearly have. Blind faith would be, for example, letting me get in the cockpit of a plane flying to JFK Airport. I've had no training. I've never flown myself as a passenger further than Belfast. And believing that I can get you safely up into the air all the way over to New York and then land you there at the end. Now, that's blind faith. That's getting in the plane and saying, this can't possibly be true, but I'm just going to believe it anyway. I'm going to believe that Adrian can get me to New York. I'm just going to believe it. I'm just going to believe it. And if I say it often enough, perhaps it'll become true. That's perhaps how you think about Christianity. It's just a group of people getting together and saying, well, we're just going to believe these things because they make us feel better. And there's no evidence for them, and there's no basis, but it's just positive thinking, and it's a crutch, and it'll make us okay. But no, John's gospel reminds us that God doesn't expect us to do that. God provides us with evidence. God provides us with irrefutable 
proof. He said he would send a saviour and the saviour when he came would give wine, joy to the people and healing and sight and food and all these things which picture the, the salvation that God gives us, opening our eyes to see him, healing us so we can live with him and all these things. And then he says, and look, look at this man, Jesus. He does all these things. He ticks all the boxes. It is logical faith. It takes more faith to believe Jesus is not the Christ than to believe he is. Again, somebody has said a Christian is someone who's decided to kid himself. Someone who's taken a conscious decision to suspend reality and to live in a fantasy world of the Bible's making. But here we have evidence, hard, solid facts. And it's the case with the Christian life as well. When the Lord says, I will take care of you, I will meet your every need. Now, sometimes we can't see that obviously, can we? It doesn't obviously look to us like Jesus is meeting our need and helping us and looking after us. But even then, we're not called to exercise blind faith because we look back over our lives and we see a God who has proved himself to us, a God who has shown us that he takes care of his people and he will provide for us. And so then we're not sort of taking a stab in the dark. We are pinning our faith on irrefutable evidence. And the miracles of Jesus are the evidence that he is this Messiah, the Christ. Have you ever wondered why so much effort has been put over the years into debunking the miracles of Jesus? Because Satan wants to take away from us the proof of our Lord's identity. But why does Jesus, sorry, why does John want us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Why? Well, what does it mean here is the issue, isn't it, to believe? He wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. What does that mean? Does it mean simply an intellectual belief? He wants to convince us intellectually. Well, there is that. We do need to see it in our heads, as it were, and in our minds. Yes, it is a thing involving our thinking. Here's the evidence, and it draws us to this conclusion. But the belief that John is speaking about here is not simply an intellectual belief. 99 times in John's gospel, the words believe, believes, and believing appear. And 36 times, they're followed by another key word, which is in. To believe in. And that's John's point. He wants to do both. First of all, he wants to bring you to see to understand, to grasp intellectually who Jesus is. But then he wants you to do something with that belief. Having believed in the mind that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Saviour, God promised to provide for his people. He then wants you to believe 
in Jesus. And that actually means to believe into Jesus. Not believing in him like you believe, might believe in Father Christmas or the Tooth Fairy, but to believe into him. Do you know what that means? It means to lay hold in your heart of this truth about Jesus, to embrace it, to cling to it, not just to say, oh yes, I've been convinced, I can see, yes, the miracles prove to me Jesus is this saviour, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. It means to do something with that knowledge, to receive the knowledge and to act upon it. It means that we take the truth and we live our life in the light of it and under the power of it. We believe into Jesus Christ. We throw ourselves into him. We cling to him. It means we say, I can see that you are the saviour that God sent and I embrace you as the saviour that God has sent. I plunge myself into you as it were. I throw myself upon you as this saviour that God has sent into the world. So you see a logical, clear process in what John is doing. John is saying, I want to show you that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, because I want you to understand that intellectually. I want you to grasp it. I want you to see with your mind who Jesus is. But then I want you to respond to that. I want you to believe into this one that I am presenting to you. It's not enough simply to watch him from afar. It's not enough simply to be able to pass a test on him. But I want you then to receive him, embrace him, throw yourself upon him. That's believing in Jesus. And why does John want us to believe in Jesus? He tells us here in verse 31, because by believing, you may have life in his name. John wants you to have life. John knows that that life comes through Jesus Christ. That life comes through believing in Jesus Christ. And so John says, I must show you that Jesus is the Christ. Because when you know who he is, and when you embrace who he is, you receive the life that he came to bring. You see, by nature, we're all living in a state of death. We are the walking dead. We think of death in a very limited way, don't we? We think of it as the cessation of life, the heart stops beating and whatever. But life is actually, uh, sorry, death and life are actually conditions or states in which we function in this world. In the Old Testament, death is seen quite simply as being apart from God, to have no relationship with God, to be cut off from God, to be under God's condemnation is to live in a state of death. No hope, no joy, no peace, no purpose, no help, dead while we live. Oh, we're functioning. The body might be functioning very well. And we may be engaging in things of this life, but in reality, we're in a state of death. And the Bible says to be in fellowship with God 
is to be in a state of life, joy, hope, peace, love, purpose, comfort, energy. All these things come through fellowship with God. And so we're born in a state of death, a hopeless, miserable existence, cut off from God under his condemnation. Why? Because we've rebelled against God. Because we've said, I don't want you. We're cut off from him, but we don't want to be in fellowship with him anyway. That's what we've chosen. We are condemned to what we've chosen. That balance there. We're cut off from him because we don't want him. And we're in a state of death. And God's offer to us today is life. To have fellowship with him. To come into relationship with him. To know him. To have access to him. And that's life. There is nothing, there is no one more alive than a Christian. To know God is to be really alive. With that joy and hope and peace and purpose. But we need to come into fellowship with God. We need that relationship with him. How does that come? Through Jesus Christ. Through believing in his name. You see, if we're going to have fellowship with God, then what keeps us from God needs to be dealt with, doesn't it? It's our sin. It's our rebellion. It's our refusal to worship, serve, and love him that keeps us away from God and mires us in death. And we need Jesus to take us out of death and into life, away from rebellion and into relationship, if we're ever going to know life. And we need someone to deal with our sin. And that's what Jesus Christ came to do. He came into the world to pay the price for our sin. Have you ever thought how astonishing that is? That the one whom we sinned against, comes to deal with what we have done. We didn't ask him to do it. We didn't plead with him to do it. He chooses, the offended one, chooses to make a way of forgiveness for his enemies while they were yet his enemies. That's grace. Amazing grace. And Jesus Christ came into the world and there on the cross, he suffered death separated from God for that season in a state of death separated from him away from him in a sense Jesus went into death before he actually died because those last three hours before he died in the way we think of it were a state of death for him away from God no fellowship with his father and he enters that death that's what hell is away from God forever. And for those three hours, he's away from his father, paying the price of our sin. And today, John, more than that, the Holy Spirit who prompted John to write this gospel, wants you to know who Jesus Christ is. That's the most important thing there is, to know who Jesus Christ is, to know that he is the saviour, to know that he is the one who brings life, because we cannot have life without him. 
John says, I want you to know who he is so that you may understand who he is, so that you may embrace who he is. And as you do that, you receive this life. God sent his only begotten son into the world that whoever believes in him, whoever understands who he is and embraces who he is and pins everything he has on who he is, whoever believes in him will not perish, will not live eternally in this state of absolute misery and death, but have everlasting life. He who has the son has Life, says John earlier in his gospel. He who does not have the Son does not have life. Do you understand why it's so important you know who Jesus is? Do you understand why it's so important you grasp and you accept and you embrace who Jesus is? Because it's only as we believe into him as our saviour, it's only as we say, you're my only hope. You are the one who can give me this life. You are the one who can bring me into fellowship with God. You are the one who can deal with all the consequences of my rebellion and the death and the misery and the absolute hopelessness and despair of it all. It's only once we've got who Jesus is that we can know life. So many things in this world promise life, don't they? but they don't bring it. They don't bring that hope, that joy, that peace, that love. But God offers it to you in this person, Jesus Christ. What you think of him and who you think he is, is all important. We hear a lot these days, don't we, about what is your identity? And we can make up different identities. It's who Jesus Christ is that matters. And he has one unfixed identity. Sorry, an unbreakable fixed identity. He is God's son, the only saviour. Moses said to the people back in the Old Testament, choose death or life. You've got to choose. Today. You have to choose. Are you going to embrace life offered in God? Or are you going to remain in death? And what you make of Jesus Christ, who you think he is, and how you respond to who he is, is the difference maker. A modern hymn says this, Through the ages... Christ confronts us. Who do men say that I am? Moral teacher, noble leader, son of God, atoning lamb. This, the most important question ever asked since time began. Your eternal future rests on answering, who is this man? And I'd encourage you, if you've never done it before, read John's gospel. Read these miracles. Allow them to point you to Jesus Christ and to who he is. Read how Jesus interpreted these miracles. Read his sermons on his own miracles. And as you do so, ask. Ask God to show you. Ask God to open your eyes and ask God to give you 
that faith, that believing into Jesus, that you may have life in his name. Read John's gospel. And I pray that John would see fulfilled in you the purpose that moved him to, metaphorically speaking, put pen to paper. He wanted you to see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so that you would believe in him and so that you would have life in his name. May God be pleased to grant that life to us all today.